Heavenly Father, we, we believe there will be a day when we see your son Jesus face to face with eyes of sight. We pray now, as we set our eyes on your word, that you would give us the eyes of faith to behold the beauty and glory of Jesus as he's revealed in your word. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are soft to your word this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Sam and Travis met one another for the first time when they were in the second grade. Sam's family moved into town from out of state, and the two boys met playing kickball at recess. Now, generally speaking, it's not hard for second grade boys to make friends with one another, especially when they share a mutual love for kickball. But Sam and Travis, they formed a bond that went deeper than most right away. Simply put, they did everything together. Every day after school, they played outside at one or the other's house. Every weekend, they spent the night at one or the other's house. When summer rolled around, they would meet one another on their bikes somewhere between their two houses, and then they would just disappear each day, playing all day long until they needed food or until the sun went down. As Sam and Travis aged, their friendship grew. Eventually, they traded kickball for baseball, and they made the same travel team. When they were in high school, they took the same classes. They were interested in the same girls. Their families took annual trips to Myrtle together. Sam and Travis were inseparable. And they really grew to depend on one another. In the 11th grade, when Travis's parents divorced, right, it was Sam who provided the encouragement and the support that helped Travis through those difficult days. The following year, when Sam's grandfather died, it was Travis who stood next to Sam at the wake and during the burial so that Sam wouldn't have to face those difficult moments on his own. Yeah, Sam and Travis grew up, they grew up together. Now, Travis was a bit more academically minded than Sam, and so they parted ways after high school graduation. Travis went to college a few hours away and embraced campus life, while Sam stayed home and he tried community college. He decided ultimately that it wasn't for him, and so he went to work for a local construction company. These different paths in life, though, they didn't ultimately hinder their relationship. When college was on break, Travis would come home, and he and Sam would pick things up where they left off, right? Weekends at the lake, trips to the beach, you name it. After he graduated, Travis got a job in the city, but he and Sam, they still hung out a lot. Age and responsibility did start to reshape their relationship a bit. The biggest change came when Travis met Katie. Right, he fell head over heels for this young woman that he met at the gym, and soon they were on the fast track toward marriage. Travis was excited to introduce Katie to Sam for the first time, but the truth is, best friend and girlfriend didn't really hit it off. She was a Duke fan, he was a Carolina fan. Her Instagram was full of stuff that Sam thought was annoying. Soon, Katie was dragging Travis to Taylor Swift concerts and monopolizing his time on the weekend, shopping at boutiques and doing other stuff that the boys thought was stupid. In the end, there was not room for romance and bromance, and so Travis and Sam drifted apart. Sam stood up at Travis and Katie's wedding, 
But by the time he got married, several years after that, the two had spoken so infrequently that he didn't ask Travis to stand up at his. Decades later, Sam and Travis ran into each other at a restaurant when Sam was home for a family funeral. They talked awkwardly for a few minutes, and then they went separate ways. Who was that? asked Sam's teenaged son. He was my best friend in high school, Sam answered. We used to do everything together, but we don't really talk anymore. Why not, responded the son. Well, to be honest, Sam answered after a pause, he's a good dude, but I just can't stand his wife. He's a good dude, but I just can't stand his wife. I wonder if that might not sum up your view of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. For 13 weeks now, we have been walking together through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest Christian confession or creed. Christians have confessed the creed for 2,000 years because it is a concise summary of what all Christians everywhere must believe in order to truthfully call themselves Christian. And each week as we've read the creed aloud together in our gatherings, there have been like a couple of phrases that have made some of us wince. Right, I've seen it, right? I've been able to see it in your face as we read the creed together, right? There are some things that you are maybe willing to say, but you're saying them with like a healthy measure of skepticism or through clenched teeth. I think the first of those phrases we covered a few weeks back when we considered the idea that Jesus descended into hell, right? We geeked out on that for 45 minutes and like most of us left, I think, feeling better about that idea. Today, we come to the second most controversial line in the creed. Today we consider what it means to believe with true faith in the holy Catholic Church in the communion of saints. And again, I've seen the concern on your faces every time we've read those phrases together. The first few weeks, especially, some of you were like looking around in shock and horror as I read those words aloud to you, as I asked you to read those words aloud with us. Some of you were like, do the elders know that Sharp is making us say these things out loud, right? Like there was genuine concern on your faces. Well, I hope and pray that in our time together today, I can resolve that concern But more than that, I hope and pray that through our time together today, we can come to see and to believe that we cannot truly love Jesus without also loving his wife. I hope and pray that we come to see that the church, the Holy Catholic Church, is the object of Christ's deepest eternal affection. Therefore, in order to be like Jesus, and to live like Jesus, the church must be an object of our affection as well. To walk in that direction, I'm gonna look at two different biblical passages. The second of them is in Acts chapter two, and so if you wanna be ready, you can turn in your Bible to Acts chapter two and just stick your finger there. But first, I'm headed to Revelation chapter seven. And so, Revelation seven first, Acts chapter two second. I'd love it if you'd Turn in your Bible and pull that up in front of you. 
By now, if you've been with us week after week, you kind of already know the outline of the message, right? We have said throughout this series that true belief in the truths of the creed, it requires three things of us, right? It must inform our intellects, it must command our wills, it must transform our affections. And so in my family, our shorthand on that has been just true belief. It shapes our minds, our hands, and our hearts. And so as we think today about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, we're going to think about those three things in that order. So let's start with our minds, with our intellects. What must we know and understand in order to confess that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints with true faith? To get there, we're going to look at these two different portraits of the church in the Bible. The first comes in Revelation 7. We're going to start in verse 9. This is the Apostle John describing his vision of eternity when he says, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now what John is describing right here is a portrait of the Holy Catholic Church. By that, I mean, and the Apostles' Creed means, the one true universal church comprised of all true Christians from all times and all places. Right? That's the meaning of the word Catholic with a lowercase c in the Apostles' Creed. It has nothing to do with the Roman uppercase C Catholic Church. It has nothing to do with the Bishop of Rome or nuns and monks and monasteries and convents and that kind of thing. Rather, the Holy Catholic Church describes the universal church, the true church of all Christians everywhere from all times and all places. Now, from these two verses, let me just point out a couple of things that we must know about this universal, lowercase c, Catholic church. First, this holy Catholic church is one church, not many churches, right? You see that in verse 7, John says, I saw a great multitude, not many great multitudes. Confessing faith in the holy Catholic church means confessing faith in one church, that transcends denominational lines, it transcends culture, it transcends language, it transcends time and space and history, for there is only one holy Catholic church. And any person of any language at any point in time who confesses with the saints that Jesus Christ is Lord is a member of that one holy Catholic church. Secondly, notice that that one holy Catholic church is diverse. John says that people from every nation are members of the church, people from all tribes, all peoples, all languages. In other words, no one people group has special insider access to this holy Catholic church. This holy Catholic church is not an expression of any one culture. In fact, it transcends culture and language completely. It even transcends time and space. The holy Catholic church, it exists outside of history which means that its members come from every generation of people who have ever trusted in the gospel. In our cultural moment right now, we tend to assume that anything old is bad. 
We tend to believe that new and modern means right and good, whereas old and antiquated means primitive and inferior. But in the Holy Catholic Church, no generation is privileged over another. We'll gather with the saints of every generation for all eternity. It's a well-known church historian named Timothy George who supposedly began the first lecture of every semester of his church history class at Southern Seminary by saying, my job is to convince you that there was someone between Jesus and your grandmother and that it matters. Now, of course, there are so many believers between Jesus and my grandmother, so many centuries of the faith, and they matter, right? Our faith, it has been handed down to us by a chain of faithful saints, a chain that spans millennia. We've received the faith from the people who have gone before us, and we'll hand that faith off to the people who will come after us, and then we will all join together as members of the Holy Catholic Church in eternity. And so the diversity of the one holy Catholic church, it matters so much. Third, notice that this holy Catholic church is holy. Right, John, he mentions the white robes and the palm branches in this picture of the holy Catholic church. The white robe is a symbol of purity. The palm branch is a symbol of peace between God and man. Now that peace exists. And that holiness is real, not because of the character quality of the members of this holy Catholic church. That peace exists and that holiness is real because Jesus has accomplished those things through his gospel. The church was hostile toward God in her sins, but Christ made peace by his blood. He endured God's wrath. He cleansed his people of their sin. And now he presents those who have trusted in his saving work and surrendered to his lordship. He presents us as holy and righteous before God. And so our white robes they owe to him and not to ourselves. Christ has made his church holy. And then finally notice that this holy Catholic church, it is spiritual and it is therefore at this moment invisible. What I mean is that we cannot know with any certainty today those who will surround the throne of Jesus Christ on the last day. Right? We cannot know today definitively the membership role of Christ's holy Catholic church. But membership in Christ's holy Catholic church, it can only be determined by a heart that has been born again And while certain things in this life can be windows into the condition of our hearts, we cannot truly know the condition of anyone's soul in this life. And so this spiritual and invisible nature of the Holy Catholic Church, it should hit us in in two ways, I think. One, it should lead us to beware of resting in our religious deeds, right? Doing religious things should be no sign of anything, Doing religious things should certainly be no sign that we are saved. The Pharisees' lives were full of religion, but their hearts were far from God, and we can so easily drift into that same trap. We can think because we've been raised in a religious family or because we've attended church from a young age or because we've been consistent in our religious observance, we can think that that means or guarantees that we are members of Christ's holy Catholic church. But the truth is that it is possible to do and be 
all of those things while still refusing to submit to Christ as Savior and as Lord. Right? All of those things can be externally true without any corresponding internal reality. And so we should beware of resting in the external, of trusting in the external. And we should humble ourselves before God, every single one of us, asking him to more truly and perfectly transform our hearts into his image. Secondly, because the Holy Catholic Church is spiritual and invisible, we can celebrate the fact that no one is outside of the reach of God's grace. Right? It does not matter how messy your life is visibly. God can still do a saving work invisibly in your heart. And so you may think that you have run from God for too many years. You may think that your past is just too sinful and too messy. You may think that your life is falling apart and no one can put it back together. You may think that your loved one has wandered too far and for too long, but the Holy Catholic Church is spiritual and invisible, which means that no one joins the Holy Catholic Church without a miracle. No one, doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter if you were going to Sunday school before you could wipe your own nose, right? Everyone comes into Christ's holy Catholic church because of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Therefore, no one is too far from the grace of God. No one has moved away so far that God cannot bring them back to himself. This is the holy Catholic church. It's one it's diverse, it's holy, it's invisible. And we must know these things if we're going to confess the creed with true faith. But that's not all we must know because the creed goes on after saying that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the creed then goes on to confess that we believe in the communion of saints. In other words, the creed moves to a second portrait of the, the church. It moves from the invisible universal church to the local visible church. And that's why we're going to look at a second passage. I want you to flip now to Acts chapter 2 so that you can see this biblical portrait of the visible local church. I'm going to read in Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 42. Luke is describing the local visible church in Jerusalem and he says this. He says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the local church, the communion of saints, right? It's visible. It's comprised of people from one time people who gather in one place. It is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And I won't point out everything that I could point out here, but let's just consider a few characteristics of the communion of saints that we see on display here in Acts chapter two. 
First, I want you to notice that the communion of saints is apostolic. That means that the visible church, the local church, it gathers around the preaching and teaching of the apostles. Right, I think you see that in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now that's one of the marks of any true local church. It is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We can be thus devoted today by committing ourselves to the teaching of God's word. Right? The apostles no longer walk among us. In 2022, the apostolic office has ended. It ceased with the end of the New Testament era. Yet every single time we open our Bibles, we open up the authoritative testimony of the apostles. We open the teaching of the apostles as it's revealed to us in Holy Scripture. And so one characteristic of the local church, the communion of saints, is that that gathering of people is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. We're devoted to the word of God. Second, the communion of saints, the local church, it is faithful in observing the ordinances. Now, if you didn't grow up in church or if you don't have a church background, that word, ordinances, we use that word to refer to baptism and communion. These are like the rites and rituals of the local church. Baptism is the entry rite. Think of it like wedding vows between a believer and Christ, but also between a believer and his or her local church. When we celebrate a baptism, like we will in just a few weeks here, we're celebrating the beginning of a holy covenant relationship between a believer and Christ and that believer's church. And then communion is the ongoing rite or ritual. If baptism is like marriage vows, communion is like a wedding anniversary, right? It speaks of the moment when we renew our commitment and our allegiance to Christ, but also to one another. Now, verse 42 speaks of this ordinance of communion when it talks about the breaking of bread, right? That's not snack time here in Acts 2. No one's like busting out a PB&J during the apostles' teaching in the early church. That's, that's the ordinance of communion, the ordinance that we'll celebrate today. It reminds believers of their commitment to Christ and our commitment to one another. And then finally, I want you to notice that the communion of saints, the local church, it is characterized by a thick relational commitment to one another. I just want you to consider again this picture that we see here in Acts. I mean, look, for example, at verse 44. All who believed were together. They had all things in common with one another. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, the context of that is one another, right? If a believer in this local church realized that another believer was in need, he would sell his excess so that he could give to his other believer in the local church who was in need. Verse 46, they were attending the temple together. They were breaking bread in their homes together. Right, the relationships shared by believers in this local church, in the communion of saints here, they were deep and intentional, and they were profoundly formative. That's what I mean by a thick relational commitment to one another. These local church members, they gave of themselves and of their lives to one another. They invested 
in one another. They enjoyed a kind of relationship that cannot be enjoyed if one merely attends church. Right? This kind of thing, it doesn't happen if you show up for an hour and 15 every week and that's it. This only happens if you move beyond participating in a church to belonging to a church. The communion of saints, life in a local, physical, embodied expression of an embassy of the universal church, right? it is a deep and meaningful relational experience and commitment. That's why one of our values here at Life Church, it's the idea that we belong together, right? We need each other and belong to each other as members of the communion of saints. Now let me pivot right here to the second idea that we need to really wrestle with today. How will confessing these things command our wills? What will we do with our hands, with our lives? in light of the fact that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Well, church, as long as I have the sacred privilege of being one of your pastors, I do hope to lift up before you just the awesome significance of the local church. There is nothing like the local church in the universe. The local church is God's plan A for reaching the world and transforming his people. God has no plan B for accomplishing those things. Furthermore, even though it is inevitably messy and hard, the local church is, in my opinion, an absolutely beautiful place. It's a place where sinners like me and you, we commit to love one another and do one another spiritual good. And no, it is not perfect, but praise God for the fact that the local church is not a perfect place because if the local church was a perfect place, then we would not get to belong here, right? The minute we would walk through the doors, we would suddenly soil that perfect place and we would be unwelcome. I love the local church. But what I want you to see today is that it is actually impossible for you to obey most of the New Testament's teaching without a deep and abiding commitment to the local church. We need to be committed to the communion of saints if we're going to do most of what the Bible calls us to do. And if we aren't committed to a local assembly of believers, then that virtually guarantees that we will ignore a host of biblical commands. Let me explain what I mean. For example, in in the New Testament, depending upon how you count, there are between 50 and 60 different one another commands, right? Again, it depends on how you count, but between 50 and 60 different one another commands. And what I would lay before you is the fact that almost every one of those commands requires a context like a local church. Let me read just a few of them to illustrate this. Here's, Here's a few. The New Testament commands us to love one another, to serve one another, to accept one another, to strengthen one another, to help one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another. Now you might be asking, like, what do those commands have to do with belonging to a local church? My answer is simple. How else do you define one another? Right, if you define one another as all Christians everywhere, the universal church, then that means you're your obedience to those commands will be very thin and very weak and very insubstantial, right? If the Bible commands you to love one another, meaning love other Christians, and you want to apply that command to all Christians everywhere in the church universal, 
then man, that love is going to be barely more than like wishful thinking, right? You're going to want to feel nice things for Christians halfway across the world. If that love is going to have any kind of teeth, if it's going to be real and meaningful, then it's going to be love that exists in the context of a committed relationship with other believers. It's going to require the communion of the saints. Serve one another. Right? If you're going to serve someone in a way that is even remotely meaningful, right, then you must know that person and be in real relationship with that person in the context of the communion of saints, the local church. I can just keep going and going and going on this. Forgive one another? How in the world do you do that without knowing the people that you're forgiving? Commit to one another? How in the world do you do that without being committed to the people that you're committed to? Build trust with one another. Be devoted to one another. Submit to one another. Right? The New Testament, it just goes on and on and on here. How can you possibly submit to a Christian who lives across the globe? How can you possibly submit to a Christian who lives across the county unless you're in a real, meaningful, and committed relationship with them? Right? These commands, they're only they only make sense in the context of the communion of saints, and we can only obey them in the context of a local church. And so my point here is that what do we do with these truths that we confess? Well, we give ourselves to the church. We commit ourselves to the church because that's the only way that we can practically obey what the Bible summons us to obey. So if you're sitting here with us this morning and you're not a member of a local church, become one. I honestly don't care if it's this one. I mean that genuinely. Find a church that is genuinely committed to the apostles' teaching and I would be glad for you to be a member of that church. I'm happy for you to commit elsewhere so long as you commit so that you can obey the Bible. And if you're already committed to a church, I praise God for that. Resolve to commit yourself more, right? Find more and deeper and more meaningful ways to serve the people of your local church, not so that the programs of that local church can be awesome, but so that you can do what Jesus has called you to do. I'm sure that I've read this here before, but I'm struck by what D.A. Carson says about the communion of saints, about the local church, and I wanted to read it to you again. Carson, he writes, ideally the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation or group, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. And then here's what I want you to listen to. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. A band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That takes me to how confessing the creed and believing in the church universal and local should transform our affections 
Church, in short, Jesus loves his wife. If we love Jesus, then we will love Jesus' wife too. Honestly, we may not always like Jesus' wife, but we will love her because Jesus does. But here's the kicker. You can't love the universal church without also loving a local church. Right, you can't say to Jesus, dude, I'm really glad that you met the girl of your dreams. I'm happy for you. I think she's great. I love the idea of her. I just really don't want to be in a relationship with her. But that's what a lot of us do. We're fine with the idea of the universal church, but we don't dive deep into a relationship with the local church, which means we try to love Jesus but ignore his wife. And brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that you grasp just how much Jesus loves his wife. One of the many metaphors that the Bible uses to describe God's relationship with his people is that of a husband loving a prostitute. But the Bible says that you and me, the church, in our faithlessness to our Lord, we are like a prostitute who keeps cheating on her husband again and again and again. And yet again and again and again, our husband keeps coming back to us and bringing us back to him no matter how faithless we are, no matter how many times we give our hearts to other husbands, he loves us and he takes us back. He doesn't even wait for us to come to our senses and crawl back to him, by the way. He pursues us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, while we're still in bed with some other dude, Jesus comes and he takes us in and he restores us to himself because Jesus loves his bride that much. The Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards, he said that the church is actually the reason that the entire cosmos exists. But he said that God created simply so that the Son of God would have a bride to enjoy, so that he could share all of his love and all of his kindness and all of his grace with her. God created the universe so that Jesus could purchase for himself a people, not because he needed that people, not because he was lonely, but because he desired to shower upon you and upon me the oceans of love that existed in his heart. Here's how Edwards puts this. It's a mouthful, but this is so good. He says, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. This is why God created, that the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, pour forth all that immense fountain of love and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. Jesus loves his church so much. How should our belief in the church transform our affections? Well, true belief in the gospel it will lead us to love the church too. Christian, how much do you love your Savior? Here's one way you can tell. How much do you love the bride 
that he gave his life to obtain. Pray with me. Jesus, it should stun us that you created the cosmos so that you might demonstrate your love and mercy and grace for us. You did not need us, you wanted us. It cost you everything to love us. But your love for your church is that full and complete and perfect. May we see that and may that transform our love for your church. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.